At this time of year, so many around the Western world are celebrating Christmas. But I wonder how many really understand the reason for the season. Well, if you want to understand what Christmas is all about, you need to look to God's Word. Because it's in God's Word that we see the testimony of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We had Luke chapter 2 read for us this morning. It provides the details surrounding Jesus' birth. The Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke all begin with glorious narratives of the birth of Christ. Matthew and Luke provide genealogies showing the lineage of Christ. Matthew goes all the way back to Abraham and Luke goes all the way back to Adam. But John takes us back further still. John takes us back to the beginning. In fact, John takes us back to before the beginning, back to eternity past. So this morning, as we look at the first half of John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, we're going to be considering who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? That's the main reason why John wrote this gospel account. In fact, John tells us why he wrote this in John 20, verses 30 and 31, almost at the end of the book. He says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, now hear this, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John wrote this gospel account so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and so that we will be saved. John is telling us who this Jesus is. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is the one whose name is on so many lips at this time of year? We're going to take a look at some of the elements that are presented in John 1, 1 to 18, that reveal to us who Jesus is. Jesus is God. Jesus is God the Son. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Creator. Jesus is life, and Jesus is light. So let's hear from the Apostle John. First, we see that, that Jesus is God in, in John 1, verses 1, and also at the end, at, at verse 18. And this, it's really what's called an inclusio, where there's, there, there's, it, it kind of brackets all of the thoughts that are in this one section of Scripture. As A.W. Pink explains, the theme of, God, of John's gospel is the deity of the Savior. Here, as nowhere else in Scripture, so fully the Godhead of Christ is presented to our view. John 1.1 begins with the words, in the beginning, and here he is intentionally drawing a link between this and Genesis 1.1, which also begins, in the beginning. Now, we're going to be doing a study of Genesis, starting a study of Genesis in the next few weeks, Lord willing, but... But, but as I said, John goes back not just to the beginning, not just to creation, but to eternity past. To eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Now, the word here obviously refers to Jesus because we look down in verse 14, John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We're talking about Jesus Christ, God the Son. So what John is saying here in in verse 1 is that in the beginning, the word already was. In the beginning, the word already was there. Both God and the word were there present at the very beginning of all things. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are eternal. They are co-eternal. They have all existed for all of eternity. If you remember from a few months ago in our study of the attributes of God, we, we looked at the eternality of God. But trapped in time as we are, the eternal nature of God is beyond our finite understanding. We we can't really comprehend something that is eternal because we are time-bound creatures. But you can't even begin to see the eternality of God unless you are born again. You need to see these things with spiritual eyes. You need to have the eyes of your heart enlightened through the work of the Holy Spirit. The word did not come into existence. He simply was. He is. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. As Charles Simeon explains, though he was born into the world in time, yet in his divine nature he existed from eternity. So throughout the Gospel of John, we see repeated statements that, that where Jesus is demonstrating who he is. He, he's Again and again, he's referring to himself as I am. As I am. And if you know uh, anything about the book of Exodus, you see that this is the designation that, that the Lord gave to Moses when in, in Exodus chapter 3, when he declared who he was, he said, I am. And so when Jesus draws this direct link with these I am statements that John records for us in his gospel, Jesus is saying, I am the I am. He's saying, I am Yahweh. I am the eternal Lord. Now the Pharisees understood what Jesus was talking about when he referred to himself as the I am, so they took up stones to stone him. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. John again returns to this theme of Jesus as God in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is the only God who is at the Father's side. Jesus reveals God's nature to us. And so he declares directly in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Notice also here in verse 18 that that he is God, but he is also at the Father's side. So Jesus is God and he is at the Father's side. Yet if you understand the nature of God, this should begin to create attention for you. This is a paradox because we know that there is one God. Yet there is one God that exists in three persons, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son are both part of the one true God, and they share all of the attributes of God, yet they are distinct from one another. Again, this is a mystery that is too deep for us to understand. 
But we have to understand according to God's word. We can't let our own attempts to, to explain these things apart from God's word steer us away from the truth. We need to look at the testimony of God's word. And Jesus reveals God to us. We see this also in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Or Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So when we begin to think about the fact that, that Jesus is God, this is vitally important for us to understand. This is vitally important for our faith. But there's really too many important impl implications of this for, for me to really go into to, to even a few of them. But let me talk about just one. Jesus needed to be God in order to be the sin-bearer. Jesus needed to be God in order to be the sin-bearer because infinite sin requires infinite sacrifice to pay the infinite debt of the elect. All the way through the Old Testament, we see the sacrifices of, of animals that pointed to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But those animal sacrifices were never enough in and of themselves to save anyone. They pointed to, they pointed ahead to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So these, the, the fact that, that any, any one sin, if you understand the nature of sin, any one sin is infinite because it is, it is committed against the infinitely holy God. If you went through your entire life and only sinned once, say, say something that, that people would, would view as a, as a quote-unquote small sin, like, like telling a white lie. If, if you only, through your whole life, told one white lie, and that's the only sin you ever committed, that one sin would still deserve infinite punishment in hell because you're committing sin against the infinitely holy God. But if you understand the nature of, of sin, if you understand the nature of your sin, you realize that, that, that you have never stopped sinning. That, that before you came to Christ, every, every breath of your life was sin because you were living in rebellion of him against his commandments. Jesus said that the great commandment is that you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength, and that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you understand what, that is, what Jesus was talking about there, you realize that you have never done that. I have never done that. That, that even as a Christian, that the, the most... The, 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 the most worshipful moments of my life have still been, been tainted by my sin. Like the Puritan said, I need to, to repent of my repentance. My tears need to be washed. So our sin against the infinitely holy God is infinite and it requires the infinite sacrifice. So the only one who could ever pay the debt of your sin and my sin is the infinite Son of God. Now, if you are sitting here this morning and thinking ho-hum about these truths, you really don't know who you are. 
you really do not understand who you are as a sinner. Now maybe you have lived, compared to others around you, a relatively righteous life. For myself, I didn't need to be convinced that I was a sinner. I was a, I was a drug addict. I was an adulterer. But you need to understand that, that you don't need to compare yourself against me and my sin. You need, to, you need to compare yourself, again, against the infinitely holy God. His is the standard. Jesus is the standard. And we all fall short of that perfect holy standard. When, when I was a, a phys ed teacher in Australia, I would teach, I taught primary school, like preschool to grade seven. And, and I would, would teach these preschoolers, you know, four-year-olds, long jump. And, and if a four-year-old, you know, jumped a meter, that was a pretty good jump for a four-year-old. But then if I come along and, and I, I, I I confess I'm not a very good jumper. If I jump four meters, compared to those four-year-olds, I look pretty good. But then you, you look at the world record, which is 7.95 meters, or 8.95 meters, almost 30 feet. All of a sudden, my four meters isn't looking so good anymore. But the standard, what God requires, is perfection. Like being able to jump from, from here to Vancouver. And so if you compare someone who could jump from here to Vancouver, and that's what's required of us, whether it's one meter or four meters or nine meters, it's nothing. We need our sin to be paid for by the infinitely holy God. Jesus needed to be God in order to be the sin bearer. The perfect sacrifice as he, as he gave up his life on the cross, as the Father poured out his holy wrath on his perfect Son in our place. Jesus needed to be God to pay our debt. But he also needed to be a human being. He needed to be man because it was man who sinned. So he somehow needed to be both fully God and fully man. And Jesus was both. Again, this will, this will bend your brain. That Jesus had two natures, God and man. Theologians call that the hypostatic union. Fully God and fully man. And that's why at Christmas we, we celebrate the incarnation of Christ. That Jesus, God the Son, took on human flesh and dwelt in the middle of his sinful creation. That's why Jesus was born of a virgin. He had a human mother, but Joseph wasn't his father. Joseph was his adopted father. His true father was God the Father. So in order for Jesus to pay for our debts, he had to be fully God and fully man. Next, we see in, in John 1, 1 and 14 and 18 that Jesus is also, he's, he's God, but he's God the Son. This is an important theme throughout John's gospel account. Notice there in verse 1, the word was with God and the word was God. 
Jesus is not God the Father. Jesus is God the Son. Now jump down to verse 14. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. In verse 18, the only God who is at the Father's side. I think here that Nasby actually gets it better. Uh, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. I think that's it's a more accurate, more faithful translation there. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one God, yet three distinct persons. Again, this is completely beyond our ability in our finite human minds to be able to comprehend. How can somebody be, be God and also be with God at the same time? Well, we, again, we can't understand this except we need to submit to what God's word teaches about who he is. And so Jesus points to it repeatedly in John's gospel and throughout the Bible. We see that, that God is one and yet with three distinct persons. The Father sent the Son, but the Son willingly went because there is one will in the Godhead. Jesus Christ, God the Son, is eternally equal with the Father. But for the purposes of salvation, he submitted himself to the Father's will by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. People try to explain the Trinity and at best, they, they always fall short. At worst, they end up in heresy. The Arians denied the deity of Christ. They, they teach that, or taught that, that Jesus was a created being, that the Son was a created being, that there was a time that, that the Son didn't exist. Well, that heresy lives on in the Watchtower cult, more popularly known as the Jehovah's Witnesses. And what they do in, in order to, to try to, to reconcile this is they, they insert the word A in John 1.1. So they, they say, it, their corrupt New World Translation says, the word was with God and the word was a God. And they, they change the, the, the word of God in, in order to try to incorporate their faulty understanding. You could also go to Colossians chapter 1, and, and this is actually a very common verse that, that they will use. One of the things when you, when you discuss with, when you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, they're, they're, really, um, they're really good at, at proof texting. So they'll take one verse and they'll, they'll cherry pick it out of context in order to try to prove their understanding. Colossians 1.15, and if, if you're ever talking to a Jehovah's Witness at your door, you can bring it up before they do. John 1.15, or sorry, Colossians 1.15. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And they'll say, well, aha, Jesus was firstborn. We need to understand that, that firstborn is not talking about birth order, it's talking about a title. You see, in, for example, in, uh, in Psalm 89, you see David referred to as the firstborn. But if you know your Bible, you know that, that David wasn't the firstborn, he was the eighth son of Jesse. So firstborn is a, is a title, and it refers to talking about, about inheritance and role. And so just as David, who was a type of Christ, who was a picture that pointed to Jesus Christ, even though he was the youngest son of Jesse, he ruled over his brothers. 
So it was, a, it was a, a title that was conferred on him. And so as Jesus Christ had the title of firstborn conferred on him. And again, you can, you can see that when you read the full context. In verses 16 to 20, you see, well, in verse 16, by, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and, uh, visible and invisible. Later on in, in verse 16, all things were created through him. He is before all things, and before him all things hold together. Five times Paul here uses the term all things. But if you're talking to that Jehovah's Witness at your door, they will, if you ask them to read that from their Bible, it, it says other. Five times in that one passage, they insert the word other, all other things. They're adding to the word of God in order to try to explain their faulty position. Jesus is before all things. He is the creator of all things, not all other things. And they will acknowledge, if, if you press them on this, they will acknowledge that that is not there in the original manuscripts of the Bible. But if you ask them to read that without that, that word other, it completely changes the meaning. Jesus is before all things, not all other things besides himself. He is the creator of all things, not all other things besides himself. So Jesus is the Son of God. There's another heresy that, that people easily fall into when they, when they look at and they try to explain the, the, the Trinity according to human thinking. This group in, in church history was called the Sibelians. And so they also denied the Trinity, but they made the opposite error of the Arians. They said that Jesus is the Father, and that Jesus is also the Son, and that the Holy Spirit is, is only a power, not a person. Now this heresy continues in the United Pentecostals. And this group has been labeled as a cult even by many other Pentecostal groups. We see that Jesus is God and Jesus is with God, Father and the Son. And elsewhere in John's Gospel and throughout the Scriptures, you also see the, that the Holy Spirit himself is also God. One God, three persons. Again, the implications of this are, are far too vast for us to understand or for me to explain here, but, but, but this... Just, just one factor, and this comes from John 3.16. One of the most popular and one of the least understood verses in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So in this verse you see the, the vast love of God that he would send his only son to die for our sins so that his people could live. That's the love of God who crushed his only son for your sins and my sins. The father punished his son. Like we talked about when we did our series on the, on the model prayer. That the father poured out his wrath on his son, so that we can call God our Father. Just let that resonate in your heart for a minute. What it cost to be able to be in a relationship with the Holy God. Now, if you didn't understand your sin before, and you think about what it cost 
that you could come into a right relationship with God. We all need to repent afresh. And some of us here, I, I would imagine, have to repent for the first time and turn to Jesus. Next we see in, in John 1, 1 and 14 that Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word. This is to also tied to the concept of, of Jesus as, tr as the truth. There's really only three places in the New Testament where Jesus is referred to directly as the word, or four times rather, and it's, it's all by John. Two of them here in, in the beginning of John, uh, John's gospel in John 1, 1 and 1, 14, but also in John's first epistle in, John, in 1 John 1, 1. Jesus is the word of life. And also in Revelation 19, 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of life of God. So what does it mean then that Jesus is the Word of God? Well, A.W. Pink explains that, that a word is, is an expression. It's an expression. It's, it's by words that we articulate our speech. And the Word of God then is deity expressing itself in audible terms. Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3 points us in the same direction. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So, so word then talks about, about what God does but what God does. John MacArthur tells us that, that Jesus is the embodiment of the Old Testament concept of word. He says, if you want to see that word, that, that creative divine reason and mind and will and power of God that you've seen through all the Old Testament era, if you want to see all that power gathered up and put in a body, look at Jesus. Jesus as the word would also have resonated to the Greek mind and in the the, the for those of you that don't know, the, the New Testament was wit written in Greek. And the major language that would have been spoken uh, in, in Israel during the, the time of, of Jesus' incarnation was Greek. Well, the Greek word for word is, is logos. And, and in Greek philosophy, the, the concept of logos is, is really bound up with, with that of reason. And so the Greeks used the term logos to, to describe the rational principle of creating, sustaining, and governing. And so here in, the, in this context, we understand that, that again, it's what, what God is doing through the word. So essentially, J John was saying that the power and the reason with which God created the word, world rather, is the word. Okay, that the, the power and the reason that created the world is the word. The fact that Jesus is the Word demonstrates his, his unique role in redemption. He, he was the one who came and did the work of redemption. He, he was the one who obeyed that commandment. He was the only one who has ever loved the Lord as God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. He's the only one who ever loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus accomplished that for us. When he came in, in the flesh and live that righteous life that none of us have ever lived. And that work included 
out of love for his father, and out of love for his bride, the elect, the church, he gave his life on that cross. Died, but rose again on the third day to show that the father was satisfied with the sacrifice that he had committed for his people. So Jesus did the work of redemption. He's also the one who did the work, uh, as we saw a moment ago, of creating, but also of sustaining the world. Let this sink into your hearts for a minute. That Jesus continued to be God while he walked the earth. That somehow, even when he was a baby in the manger, he was still upholding the universe by the word of his power. He never ceased to be God. He was always fully God and fully man in the incarnation. So Jesus did the work of redemption, of creation, of sustaining the universe. The fact that the, the, the very cells of your body are cohering at this very moment and that the molecules of that pew that you're sitting on are holding together is because Jesus is still upholding the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the creator. See this in verses 3 and 10. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And again, John's use of this, of this passage in the beginning was the word, is an intentional link to Genesis 1, revealing Jesus' role in creation. Genesis 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And down in verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image. Notice that. Let us make man in our image. The single God is using plural pronouns. Us and our. There is one God in three persons. And so in this, in this passage, we, we see that, that John is intentionally saying something here that would strike a chord in the Jewish mind by calling them back to the creation account. And it would have provided profoundly new depth to verses like Psalm 33.6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the creator. Again, we, we looked a moment ago at, at Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. Jesus is life. In verse 4, and also 12 and 13, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Reference after reference in, in John's gospel refers to life coming through Jesus. He shows that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We saw that at the end of the, the book from from uh, John 20, 31. Jesus is the Savior of the world. I've already referred to John 3, 16. That God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now this doesn't mean that, that Jesus is the Savior of every single man and woman who ever lived on the planet. Okay, that would be universalism. And that's heresy. What he's saying here is that without exception, 
without, rather without distinction. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And again, if, if you'd like to talk with me about this afterwards, I'd, I'd be happy to have a chat with you. But you need to understand the context of John 3, that, that Jesus is here speaking to Nicodemus, a Jew. And, and he thought, as one of the Pharisees, he thought that the only ones who could be saved were Jews. But what's happening is here, he's making it inclusive. He's including Jew and Gentile. Now, I don't know if we have any people here of, of Jewish descent. But if you are here this morning as a, as a Gentile Christian, you understand what, what, that, what that verse means. So we see that Jesus also gives life. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father apart from me. And Similarly, Acts 4.12, there's no salvation in any other, for there's no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. This is an exclusive message. Jesus is the only way. You know, there's really only two religions in the world. There's a religion of grace, through faith in Christ, and a religion through works. And every other religion apart from Christianity is a religion of works where you have to work to achieve your salvation. Whether it's the five pillars of Islam, whether it's the, the five sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, or the eightfold path of Buddhism, Every religion in the world, apart from Christianity, you have to work for your salvation. But in Christianity, it has all been done for you in Christ. The only religion in the world. So Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is our life. John 5, 24 and 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Has eternal life. In verses uh, 12 and 13, But all who did receive him, who believed in, the, in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Talking here about the sovereignty of God and salvation. It wasn't by the will of your flesh. If you're here as a Christian, it's by the will of God. If you're a Christian, it's because God chose you for salvation. It's another theological word, it's, it's monergistic. Mono meaning one, and from ergo meaning work. One, the one who worked was God for your salvation. You did nothing, can contribute nothing to your salvation. God has done it all for you in Christ. And we receive it through repentance and faith. As we turn away from our sin and put our faith in him, all of our guilt, all of the sins that, that we committed, all, every, every act of sin, every lust, every violence, every, every work of anger, but also every sin of, of, of omission, every sin that we, thing that we don't do that we should have done, it's all put on Jesus. He becomes the sin bearer. He takes away our sin. That's half the gospel. The other half is that all of his righteousness, every good thing that Jesus did, every obedience, every act of love to the Father and to his, his fellow man is credited to our account. 
Just think about that. He takes our guilt, we take his righteousness. That's a pretty good deal. You're not going to find that anywhere else out there. If you're here this morning as a born-again follower of Jesus, it is entirely by the will and work of God. You can make, take no credit for your salvation whatsoever. Whatsoever. Jesus is light. Verses 4 to 9. In fact, verses 4b to 5 at the beginning here. The life was the light of men. The light, the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, this points back to Genesis. But God said, let there be light, and there was light. In verse uh, chapter 1-9 of, of John here, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus declared it himself in, in John 8-12, I am the light of the world. He, whoever, he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus came into a world that was darkened by sin, and the elect will respond by the light, to the light of Christ in repentance and faith as the Holy Spirit gives them life. Charles Wesley wrote this in his excellent hymn, And Can It Be? Long fast my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Maybe you can remember, brothers and sisters, maybe you can remember that moment when the light of Christ was revealed to you. In that dungeon of sin and death, in chains. The rays of God's light shone into your own heart. You woke up. And you rose and followed him. So what does it mean that, that, that Jesus is the light of men? It refers to, to moral enlightening. That... that that in part, moral enlightening, that the light of, of Christ shows us God's standard of righteousness. As he walks through his creation without sin and word or thought or deed. But, but that light is, is not enough to save. He's also the radiance of the glory of God. As we turn and see the light of, of, of in the light of Christ, we see the light of the eternal God and we repent and we find life in him. And finally, Jesus gives grace. Verses 16 and 17. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So again, like the understanding God's righteous requirement is, is not enough. The, the law can't save you. All, all the, 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 well, one of the main things the law does is it's, it's like a mirror that shows you your sin. It shows you the righteous standards of what God requires and shows you that, that you can't do it. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So out of the overflow of Christ's riches, he gives grace. He gives his, his unmerited favor. 
God gives us what we don't deserve. Well, back to the beginning, if you have an inkling of understanding of the sinfulness of your sin, you know what you deserve. But in Christ, we receive grace upon grace. Just as he has given us his righteousness, for those who have repented and put their faith in him, he also gives us his reward. He gives us his reward. The reward of eternal life. The reward of eternal fellowship with the Trinity. The greatest joy of all heaven won't be streets of gold. It won't be mansions. It won't be being without pain or, or tears. It won't even be being sinless. The greatest joy, the greatest glory, the greatest grace that we receive in salvation is fellowship with the Holy God. This all comes to us as a free gift, the grace of Jesus Christ. We know what we deserve. But if you're in Christ, you've been given what you do not deserve. Eternal life with fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So who are you worshiping this Christmas? Are you worshiping the presence of the tree, the, the God of your own understanding, some other false deity? Are you worshiping Jesus Christ, God of gods, God the Son, the Word, the Word made flesh, dwelling among a sinful creation, dying for people who deserve hell, people like you and me, granting us eternal life and fellowship with the God of the universe. That's why I'm worshiping this Christmas. I want to invite you to worship him with me. Let's pray together.